0: This has been, It is uh, good to see all of you. Um, man, this has been a little bit of a crazy week. I, I'm getting a lot of ringing. Am I standing in a bad spot? There you go. Okay, there you go. okay cool. I've never had the keyboard right in front of me there before. Um, yeah, so man, it, it's been a crazy week, and I feel like this was actually a really timely uh, passage that we're going to be talking about this morning in light of the news this week. I'm sure that you're all aware that uh, Russia invaded Ukraine this week. Um, and we don't know what, what's going to happen, what kind of ramifications that's going to have for the rest of the world. Um, my prayers are with everybody that's involved over there. And uh, it's made me think about how the decisions of people that are in places of authority can have massive impact on our lives, right? Like you think about that just... Um, In that situation, for example, if Vladimir Putin decides he wants to invade Ukraine, he ends up affecting thousands and thousands, potentially millions of lives. If he decides he doesn't, he affects him in a different way. And uh, it just kind of highlights how important it is that we do actually uh, pray for our leaders. And as Christians, that we uh, have an understanding about how we should even interact with people that are in places of authority. And uh, it just so happens that as we've been going through Romans, we're landing on a text today that's all about how Christians are supposed to interact with governing authorities, people that are in these high places. Um, and like a lot of the passages we've read in Romans so far this semester, this one's difficult. Uh, like we're, we're going to have to work through it together. It's been challenging. It's been hard for me to prepare this sermon. Um, it's been convicting to me on some levels. And uh, this is one of those passages that we're going to have to understand in the context of all of scripture uh, and we're going to need to ask the Holy Spirit to guide us and just understanding it uh, and even being able to live in light of it. So with that being said, let's pray and, and I'll dive into what we've got for today. God, we thank you that you are here with us. Um, thank you, Lord, that you ultimately are our everlasting. You're the the true king of the universe, God. You uh, raise up leaders. You bring them down. Uh, Kingdoms have come and gone. Even the greatest empires have risen and fallen, but you still remain. Um, And God, I thank you for that. I thank you that uh, you are the king of an eternal kingdom and that you've invited us into that. And so, Lord, as we Uh, are gathered here together ultimately as your kingdom people. I pray that uh, you would help us to have our minds focused on you. God, help us to have our minds focused on you. I pray that you'd remove distractions, um, anything that we might be worried about, or anything else, God, just let us put that off to the side right now. I pray that we would have hearts, Lord, that are uh, submitted to you, that we would have a real, real desire to actually want to, like, live out your word, not just to understand it, but to live it. And so, God, I thank you for being here with us, and I pray that you'd be uh, the one that guides us through the scripture this morning. We love you, and we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. Okay, so we are going to be in Romans chapter 13, so if you have your Bible with you, you can go there. Uh, I'm also going to have the text on the screen. Uh, We're just going to be reading the first seven verses of the chapter. It says this, "'Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right.' not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Okay, we'll stop there. Um, on the surface, this passage actually seems very, very simple. Uh, we see three main things in it and it's, it's really highlighting first off the legitimacy of government, that rulers have been established by God. Two, the role of governing authorities, what is it that these people are supposed to be doing? And three, we see that the, uh, what the Christian response to governing authorities is supposed to be. Uh, it's all actually relatively simple and, and straightforward. Uh, in and of itself, but when we see the teaching, it's going to raise a lot of questions. Uh, I know it at least does for me when I read it, and so uh, the way I want to approach this this morning is kind of go through those first three things. First off, to say, hey, this is the the basic thrust of what this passage is teaching, and then we'll go back and we'll have a little Q&A session, and I'm just going to work through some of the biggest questions that this passage is is likely going to arouse in us. So let's start with just talking about this idea of the legitimacy of governing authorities. Uh, We see that governing authorities are established by God, right? It says that there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. This could seem kind of shocking to us. because we know how many bad rulers and authorities there have been and continue to be throughout history. Uh, But the reality is this is actually a pretty consistent theme that we see throughout Scripture, okay? It's not like we're just seeing this here in Romans 13. Um, One of the clearest places that you can see this stated is in the book of Daniel. Um, Daniel was a a prophet who was actually living in exile. So he was a a Jewish man, but they had been conquered by the Babylonians. And uh, the Babylonians had this king named Nebuchadnezzar. cool name, right? Nebuchadnezzar. Um, And uh, he he was this mighty king. I mean, Babylon was the great empire of the time. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar had this dream where there was this giant tree that just grew up really, really tall. And then all of a sudden it was cut off at the root. And he's like, what does this dream mean? And Daniel had this reputation for being able to interpret dreams. And so he asked him, And uh, he says, hey, that that tree is actually you, like God's going to to humble you and and, and cut you down so you know that he's Lord of all the earth. But one of the things that um, Nebuchadnezzar even had the angel say to him in the dream he had, it says this, the decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the most high is sovereign over all kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes, and sets over them the lowliest of people. You see, God gives kingdoms to those he wishes, and sometimes he even sets over them the lowliest of people. Uh, it doesn't mean that he necessarily picks people that are the best, uh, most talented, or even most ethical. Um, but, but God is the one that decides who he's going to rise up uh, to these places of power. We see a similar thing with Pharaoh, who was king of Egypt when the Israelites uh, were enslaved there. Matter of fact, if you were with us for Romans 9, this was explicitly stated, Romans 9, 17. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God is the one that raised Pharaoh up, right? This guy that enslaved people, that tried to pursue Israel even after he let them go, ultimately ended up getting his army drowned in the Red Sea. That, that guy, God raised him up. It says, uh, Jesus echoes this same idea about Pontius Pilate and why he has the authority that he has when he's on trial. Uh, John nineteen ten to 11 says this, so Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me. Jesus wasn't answering his questions. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. In all these passages, we see this kind of clear and consistent theme that uh, God is the one that's raising up these people, and at the very least, he's the one that's allowing them to have these positions of power. Uh, and the text, in my opinion, even seems to be suggesting that he's playing some, an active role on some level in actually raising these leaders up. And as you noted, might have noticed, a lot of them were not good men that we were talking about. Matter of fact, none of them in, that passage, in those passages were. Um, and we'll get more to talking about that later. But let's just leave it at that for right now. I think we see this concept that uh, the governing authorities are legitimate. Like, it, it's not our prerogative to just decide that we want to ignore what they say. Um, they actually have some sort of extension of the authority of God. So let's look at what their role is supposed to be. Um, we see in verses 3 to 4, for rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the th- fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So here we're getting this idea of why is it that government is even existing in the first place? And what we see, the basic idea is that they're supposed to be a force for good, okay? The whole reason that we have government is so that we can have well-functioning, well-ordered, structured societies, all right? Can you imagine a world without any government? Some of you with more libertarian leanings, I'm kind of that way, actually, uh, might might think, oh, that'd be great, right? Um, But I'll say this, small government is very different from no government, okay? Libertarianism is very different from anarchy. Uh, and, and I'm not, I don't want to give a lecture on political views or anything like that. Um, but, but what I want you to understand here is that government at its most basic level, we can all appreciate the role that it plays. Because if you don't have it, uh, then literally you just live in a world where the, the strongest, most violent, and most ruthless people are able to take whatever they want and there's nothing you can do about it. Right like government is basically designed to be a strong entity that all the people come together to create so that it can fight off other people that would essentially be like mini warlords or gang leaders or whatever that just go around and take the things that they want. If there was no government like you you would not be able to protect any of your personal possessions. Like all of you here right now, somebody could just go home, go to your house, steal all of your stuff and there's literally nothing that you could do about it. Like, you just have to stand on guard all the time. Or, like, or you could just be living at your house. Someone could literally walk in, decide they like it more, and kick you out, and it's their spot now. Like, government exists to stop us from being able to do things like that. You know, if if you're married and there's a guy that's bigger and stronger than you that likes your wife and just wants to take her from you, government is there to help stop things like that from happening, right? So, at the very least, we, we understand the role that the government has in helping um, create a structured and ordered society, and we can all appreciate that. Um, now, we see here that God has established these rulers so that they can be forced against unchecked evil in the world. This is how it's supposed to work, even though we know that there isn't a government in the world that does this perfectly, okay? But even most imperfect governments, at least on some level, uh, do it, do the work I've been talking about, right? Like, even really, really wicked governments that do a lot of terrible things generally don't just let people steal, kill, and rape at will. Um, Now, we see that the authorities bear the sword, which means that they have the the power to use violence in order to punish evildoers, and this is actually an important concept for Christians because of what was written just a few verses earlier uh, that we saw at the end of Romans 12. I'll refresh you on it. Romans 12 19 this is right near the end of the chapter says do not take revenge my dear friends but leave room for God's wrath for it is written it is mine to avenge I will repay so as Christians we are we are not supposed to be Batman okay we're not supposed to be people uh, that are going around like executing vengeance on our own we are supposed to leave room for God to be the one that does that and now here just a few verses later what do we see That one of the ways God actually will take vengeance is through the government. Like, they are actually his appointed agents of wrath that will carry out some of that vengeance and that punishment upon evildoers. Okay? Now, we understand that as Christians that there there are eternal implications to that. When it talks about God ultimately being uh, the one that will avenge and repay, we understand... Uh, that ultimately, everyone is going to have to answer for their sins, and you're either going to have to pay for them yourself, or you're going to have them paid for you by Jesus on the cross. Uh, but even in this world, sometimes we, we need, like, swift justice, okay? Like, sometimes there's a need uh, for, for people to be put behind bars, whatever, to restrain some sort of evil, and uh, God uses the government as his agent of wrath to be able to do this. Um. This is also an important thing for Christians who were in government positions. You know, you think about this as Christians, we uh, believe in grace, we believe in forgiveness, you know, all these kinds of things. And uh, we, we are generally nonviolent people. Um, <clears throat> and I think this would be an important thing for the, the Christians to understand who were in places of government. And it's an important thing for Christians to understand today that our police officers or prosecuting attorneys, uh, judges, you know, people that do the difficult task of punishing those that do evil in our society so that it, it can be a better place for all of us to live. Now, we've understood here that, that authorities are legitimate. God has, God has placed them. It's not just that they've decided what, that they want to do their own thing. And we've seen that they are supposed to be in these positions to be a force for good that's punishing evil and rewarding good. Um, And so naturally, now we're going to come to the response that Christians should have to governing authorities. Um, This is exactly what you would expect, right? Verses five to seven. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect? Then respect. If honor, then honor. So we see here that obedience and support is really the only reasonable response to the, the two things that we've established before that, that God has put rulers in their places and that these rulers are supposed to be a force for good in the society. Um, it kind of follows naturally that, of course, we should obey them, right? And we kind of see that summarized here for two main reasons. First off, it's in your own best self interest to obey the government, avoid punishment. And two, it's the right thing to do to obey the government, like to respect the authority that God has given them. That's the matter of conscience part that he's talking about. So this is all pretty straightforward and easy when you look at it that way. Uh, the, the problem is when we take it out of just the theoretical and we move it into reality. <laughs> um, but and we're going to do that here in a second. Uh, but before we do that, you might even be thinking like, The the whole theoretical aspect of this is so straightforward. Why would Paul even write something like this in the the letter to the Romans? Like, who wouldn't live this way? Um, And this is going to start our Q&A session here, okay? So I'll start off with an easy one and get into some of the harder ones. Uh, So just the question of, like, why did Paul include this material in his letter to the Romans? Like, were they rowdy lawbreakers? Like, what, what was going on with this church? All right, I think there's two main reasons why Paul needed to write this material in the letter. First is that there were probably some that had a misunderstanding of what it means to not be conformed to the world. And second is that they had some very bad leaders that probably they didn't respect very much. Okay? So we'll work on each of those. First, this misunderstanding about what it means to not be conformed to the world. Let's flash back to a couple weeks ago when John started off what I would call kind of the practical section of Romans. We had the, the first 11 chapters of Romans is a lot of theology. Right, like we've learned so much about who God is and who we are and how we're sinners and how he saved us by faith and all this kind of stuff. We've seen tons and tons of theology, seen God's power and all this kind of stuff. And then Romans 12 through 16 is all, how do you live in light of that? And we kind of kick that section off with one and two, which says this, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. You see, Christians understood that they were given new life in Christ. And that this new life was actually very different from the old one. They understood that they were citizens of a new kingdom. And that this new kingdom was very different from the earthly kingdoms that they were a part of. They rightly understood that Jesus was countercultural in a lot of ways. But some took this too far to think that they, they were no longer under any kind of rules or restrictions that this world had, okay? That they were, like, they, they started casting aside all sorts of things that Christians were not called to necessarily cast aside. I'll give you a few examples. Uh, there were some people in the early, uh, early Christianity that were teaching that you shouldn't marry, okay? Uh, when you read 1 Corinthians 7 and Paul is talking about how it's okay to marry, that that's because there were actually people running around thinking that we shouldn't marry anymore. And the reasoning goes, well, Jesus told us that there's no marriage in heaven, right? Like if you read that, Matthew 22, he has this conversation with the Sadducees and, and he tells them that in heaven there will neither be uh, people who will not marry or be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. So the reasoning follows, well, we're citizens of heaven. We're new creations. We shouldn't get married anymore. Okay, I see how they're coming to that conclusion, but Paul is helping them realize, no, 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 like marriage is still a godly institution that God has for this time being, okay? And uh, he even warns his disciple Timothy against people that would teach that we are supposed to abstain from it. 1 Timothy 4.3 says, uh, Paul's warning about false teachers. He says, they forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God has created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. All right, so don't, don't go so far as to think that, but because of this new identity in Christ, remember, these are first generation Christians. They're trying to figure out how does all this doctrine actually work? How does this, rea- this idea of us being a new creation actually play itself out? So some people said, eh, maybe we shouldn't get married anymore. That was wrong. Um, some people thought that male and female, uh, that all gender distinctions should just be, be done away with, right, because they, the reasoning goes, well, Uh, if male and female are equal in Christ, as a matter of fact, Paul even writes in Galatians, there's no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. So we we see this idea that, like, okay, we're totally equal before Jesus. Um, Does that mean that there is really no distinction between men and women anymore? And this is likely the driving force behind a very strange passage that we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I don't know how well you know that book, but there's this weird chapter in there about head coverings. And I preached a sermon on it a couple years ago. You can look in our sermon archives if you want to on h2acincinnati.com. But likely what was going on with that was there were people in the uh, church in Corinth that thought gender distinctions don't matter anymore. They were bucking the trends there. And uh, Paul was trying to help them realize that they should still uh, be dressing in gender-appropriate ways uh, with regard to their culture, okay? Okay. So it was just another one of those examples of, oh, well, we have this new identity in Christ. Maybe we should get rid of this old thing that they saw as worldly. But they were going too far. Now, much like other instances of first-generation Christians, remember, they didn't have anyone else as Christians before them. They're all first-generation Christians. Um, They were still having to figure out what life in the kingdom of God looks like while we're still here on earth. And it seems that some of the Roman Christians were probably thinking that because they're citizens of heaven, ultimately— that they didn't have to submit to the earthly government that's over them. Once again, I can actually understand their line of reasoning. They rightly understood that God was their true king, but Paul makes it clear that just because we're actually citizens of heaven, it doesn't mean that we don't also have to submit to earthly kings over us in this time. It's true that we're citizens of heaven, but we live in this already, but not yet, right? God's kingdom has already come, but it's not yet fully here. And in this time, we have imperfect leaders— that we must submit to until our perfect King Jesus comes back, all right? This can be difficult though, especially if those people are hard to respect, which is one of the things the Roman Christians were also dealing with. They had some bad leaders, okay? As, particularly this time, there was a string of a couple bad emperors in the Roman Empire. The God, this, Romans was probably written in 57 AD, and that means that they were just recently coming off the reign of a guy named Claudius. Now, uh, Claudius was a guy that actually kicked all of the Jews out of Rome. So as we've been going through this text and seeing this uh, tension between Jews and Gentiles, remember that there's probably a lot of tension there because the Jews had all been kicked out of their city in Rome. And so it wasn't until Claudius died and Nero became emperor that the Jews were even allowed back into Rome. And so now they come back into this church that's become all Gentile, and they've got to work out some of their cultural differences. That's a lot of what we see going on in Romans. So we see that guy's hard to respect, like what, what an idiot. Why would he just kick a whole ethnicity out of a city? But if you think that's bad, you think, oh, maybe Nero will be better. Well, Nero was a lot worse, okay? Yes, Nero ended up letting the Jews come back because they were good for business, um, but this is a guy that was uh, responsible for murdering his mother, his wife, and his foster brother. Um, a lot of people suspect that he was also guilty of intentionally starting a huge fire in Rome, Uh, simply to clear ground for a giant structure that he wanted to build in the middle of the city. Uh, He then blamed that fire on the Christians, and so he would burn Christians alive as a a punishment, but really more as an enjoyment for himself. Uh, he, He was a really, really strange guy, and that's who was likely the emperor of Rome at the time that this letter was written. Okay? So with guys like this as your leaders, you can see why some of the Roman Christians would have needed instruction about how they should submit to them, honor them, and pay taxes to them. All right? So this brings us to our next logical question that we might ask, which is this. If God is the one that gives authority to human leaders, does that mean they act in a way that he wants them to? Like, does God approve of the actions of people like Hitler or Stalin or Mao or Kim Jong-un or whoever? The list could go on and on and on right? So I want to be clear here. Just because God raises a leader up does not mean that he supports or affirms all that that leader does. God is very clear about what is good and what is evil, and evil leaders don't just get a pass on their actions. In all the passages that we read earlier, the leaders that it says God rose up were actually not good men, right? Pharaoh was a wicked and hard-hearted man that that was brutal towards the Israelites as they were in slavery, Pontius Pilate, he was a ruthless Roman governor that didn't have the courage to save the life of an innocent man, Jesus, that stood before him. But it actually makes sense that both these people were in the positions they were, right? Pharaoh being hard-hearted was necessary so that God could demonstrate the fullness of his power in delivering Israel. Pontius Pilate's cowardice and weak character and not being willing to save an innocent man because he didn't want to have to deal with the consequences of the crowd was necessary because Jesus had to be crucified in order to die for the sins of the world. Nebuchadnezzar was king of Babylon, and he was a wicked man that ruled over a wicked nation. Uh, The prophet Habakkuk, uh, actually, he has this small little book, so only three chapters, but he gives us a lot of insight into this whole situation with Babylon and how God used them both to judge the sin of the Jews, uh, but also that he would later judge the sin of Babylon. All right. So I actually want to read at length a little bit for this because I think Habakkuk speaks really well into this. Uh, I'll, I'll start reading at Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 5. Look at the nations and watch. Be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong, their horsemen come from afar, they fly like an eagle swooping to devour, they all come intent on violence, their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like the sand, they mock kings and scoff at rulers, they laugh at at all fortified cities by building earthen ramps and capture them. Then they sweep past the wind and go on, guilty people, whose own strength is their God. Lord are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Okay. So you you see what Habakkuk is having a problem with is that uh, this verse here, that idea of I'm doing something in your day that you wouldn't believe even if I told you. Sometimes I hear that verse quoted totally out of context where people are using it for like, oh, God's going to do this great thing, which there are a lot of times God does great things. But what that verse means here in this context is I'm doing something that will make no sense to you, which is you are, are going to be judged for your wickedness by probably the most wicked people on earth the Babylonians, right? Now, God had had prophesied and warned the Jews time and time and time and time again that if they didn't repent and if they weren't faithful to him, that he was going to come and punish them and bring them into exile. And finally, the time had come that that was going to happen because they continued in their rebellion and their sin. But the way that he chose to do that was shocking, he didn't choose to do it by sending, you know, angels down out of heaven to punish, or a fire and brimstone, or anything like that. He didn't raise up some, like, super godly nation to come and, and reform them. No, he took some of the most wicked people on earth, the Babylonians, and said, I'm going to use them to execute judgment on you. And Habakkuk is like, what? Like, how, how can you do something like that? And, and we might feel the same way. Like, it, it, might, it might not make any sense to us, but, like, the reality is this is, is what we see that, that God did. We won't always understand why God raises up the rulers that he does or allows certain wicked people like Nebuchadnezzar or, or like Hitler or like Stalin or whoever to rise up in the power in the places that they have. I, I, I don't have the answers for you on that. And I, I don't think that I'm entitled to them. But I do know that God is not just okay with their evil deeds, even if he is the one that's allowed them to be in the spot that they are. L- later on in Habakkuk, we see that, yes, Babylon is going to be used by God to punish the Jews, but they're going to get theirs too. Like, God's not going to forget about their sin. Habakkuk two fifteen to 16 says, "'Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk, so he can gaze on their naked bodies.'" you will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup of the Lord's right hand is coming around to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. And he says that in the context of speaking about Babylon. And sure enough, later on, Babylon would fall. And we actually even see Babylon continually throughout the scriptures almost used as this image of wickedness that God will judge. We see in Revelation 18, we see the great Babylon actually being judged and burned. Um, Now, I go through all this to say that just because the authority has been established by God, it does not mean that they always behave in a way that represents him or that he is pleased by them. God has his purposes for why he allows people like Pharaoh, Pilate, Nebuchadnezzar to rise to power. Now, Just because they've been raised up does not mean in any way that God endorses what they're doing. And they have, or they will, receive the punishment for their sin that's coming to them. Now, because we know that there are so many evil rulers uh, throughout history, it almost seems like it's it's super common. Um, And if not evil, at the very least, there's a lot of incompetent ones that should lead us to another question, which is, should we still honor rulers even if they are evil or incompetent? And if so, how do we do that? Okay, what does it mean when he talks about give honor to those whom honor is due? Um, This is kind of a tricky one. I I think that we are still called to honor our leaders in the sense that we understand that they're in a position of authority that we're supposed to respect, okay? Um, I look at how David dealt with a a really crazy leader, okay? So King David is the greatest king in Israel's history. Uh, there was this super jealous king before him named Saul, and Saul was crazy, like he had major problems, and he even wanted to kill David. He was consistently actually trying to kill David, and David was on the run from this guy, and, and there was one point where uh, David and his men were hiding in a cave, and Saul comes into the cave to, to go to the bathroom, and I'm going to pick it up there, actually, and I'll 1 Samuel 24, 3 to 7, let's see what David does. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner from his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. Saul left the cave and went on his way. Man, I, I, that, that is tough for me, right? Like this man was literally trying to kill David, and David's like, no, the Lord's raised him up. I'm not going to lay my hand against him. He trusted that God was going to work it out some way to, to make things right in this situation. And, and I think that when we look at this idea of honoring our leaders, I, I, I don't know how this is going to play out in every single situation, okay? Sometimes people are under really evil leaders that they have to wrestle about what to do with. Um, there's a guy whose biography I wrote, uh, read, and, and a lot of you have probably heard of him. His name's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He lived under the Nazi Germany, um, and he wrestled with this question of like, what is my responsibility with with how I I act towards this government? You know, like, yes, we're called to honor our leaders, but at the same time, this guy is slaughtering millions of people. And so for Bonhoeffer, he thought that the Lord was actually calling him to to try and depose him. And and Bonhoeffer actually uh, took part in an assassination plot for Hitler. He got caught and he ended up dying in a concentration camp. Um, But... he, he believed that that was what the Lord was calling to. Be. I don't know for sure if that, if that was the right decision or not. Um, but I do know that when we're called to honor our leaders, at least most of us are not in situations like Bonhoeffer was in in Nazi Germany. Most of us are not even like in situations like David was in with Saul. Most of us are usually in situations where we just don't like a person's policies. You know, we're very blessed in this country to, have, to be in situations like that. But some of the um, hatred and, and uh, ridiculing and stuff that is spewed out towards our leaders, even by people that are Christians, is totally inappropriate. You know, like I don't know what your political views are, what you think about Joe Biden or what you thought about Donald Trump or anything like that, but sometimes I see people um, just slamming them uh, on social media, in the conversations, whatever, ridiculing them, name calling them, these kinds of things, and really showing no honor for them whatsoever. And I don't think that that's becoming of a Christian. Now, this does not mean that you cannot rebuke or disagree with your leaders, okay? There are times where God absolutely calls his people to come up and rebuke those that are in power, right? Like Nathan the prophet rebuked David for his adultery with Bathsheba and for arranging the death of her husband. John the Baptist rebuked Herod for having his brother's wife. It's appropriate for Christians to speak truth to power. But we can do this while still honoring the fact that, that God has put them where they are, okay? We can be respectful about how we oppose those that are doing evil things. Now, honoring authorities doesn't mean that you always have to obey absolutely everything that they say no matter what either, okay? And that leads us to our next question, which is a big one, which is, should we always obey the government? What if the, uh, it is a government that doesn't punish evil and reward good, but rather punishes good and rewards evil, right? Like we, we saw that we're supposed to submit to these governing authorities and, and we see what they're supposed to do. I think it's safe to assume that submission to the ruling authorities is only required when they're operating in line with that design that God has laid out for government, all right? The Bible is actually full of examples of people that uh, defied the governing authorities and they were rewarded for it, okay? A great example is the Hebrew midwives. Um, I'll read their story here, Exodus 1, 15 to 21. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, uh, this is when the Israelites were in in slavery in Egypt, whose names were Shipra and Puah. When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see the baby as a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. All right, so we see here that these women that are supposed to be helping deliver the babies, uh, they clearly were defying the authority. Like the king of Egypt told them, You're supposed to kill these boys. They said, No, nah, we're not going to do that. And they lied to him about it. Okay, they gave a different excuse for why the boys weren't dying. Um, but God blessed them in this, right? Because they understood that they were uh, under an authority that was much greater than the king of Egypt. It says that they feared God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, they're guys we see in the book of Daniel, they wouldn't bow down before an image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up and commanded them to bow down to, and they were thrown into a fiery furnace because of it, but God delivered them in the midst of that fiery furnace. Daniel, also living in exile in Babylon, uh, wouldn't stop praying to God even when the king ordered him that he was not supposed to. He was thrown into a lion's den and God delivered him there. Peter and John wouldn't stop preaching the gospel even when the Jewish authorities that ruled their land told them that they were not supposed to. We see this in Acts 4, 18 to 20. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And and they really hit the nail on the head. We have to obey God rather than man, okay? So in in times where uh, governments are acting outside of their delegated authority, they're not acting the way that that, that God has called them to, right? The point of government is so that they would uh, reward what is good and punish what is evil. That's the authority that God has given them to do. When they step outside the bounds of that and do the opposite, we're not obligated to follow that. As a matter of fact, we're obligated to defy that and be obedient to our God. Okay, Romans 13 is clearly not teaching a blind, unthinking submission to rulers, no matter what they say. Rather, it's teaching submission to rulers so long as they're not commanding you to do something contrary to what God says. All right, so that brings me to my last question, which is, what about stupid stuff? (laughs) All right, like what if the authorities command us to do something that isn't necessarily sinful, but I disagree with it? Like I just don't like it, it's a dumb rule. Um, and I think that this can actually be kind of a tricky one to answer. The first thing I would say, you need to identify the spirit of the law, okay? The, the spirit of the law is more important than the, the letter of the law. Uh, look at how Jesus treated the Sabbath as opposed to how the Pharisees treated the Sabbath. Uh, Luke 14, one six. One Sabbath when Jesus went in, uh, went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abdominal swelling of the body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and went on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. Okay, Jesus, of of course, understood the law. He's literally God who gave the law. Uh, But but he understood what the, the spirit of the Sabbath law was. Why is it that God gave this command to his people in the first place? Was it because he wanted them to be obsessive legalists about making sure that they didn't do anything that could even remotely be described as work on the Sabbath day, the way the Pharisees saw it? No, that wasn't the point of it. He says that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The spirit of the Sabbath law was so that people would actually have time to be able to rest and reflect on God and see him as their provider. It was supposed to be a blessing to them. It wasn't supposed to be this curse of a burden that would make it to where, oh, my kid fell in a pit? Well, I'll see you tomorrow. I hope you survive because I can't get you out right now, right? Like, but, but the Pharisees were, were almost that ridiculous about it. You see, the, the Sabbath is supposed to be something that was actually healing and restorative, right? Like it gives rest for your body and even for your soul as you remind yourself that God is your provider. So as Jesus goes and heals people on the Sabbath, what is he doing? He's, he's being restorative. It's exactly in line with what the design of the Sabbath actually is. So even though it might not be, but with the exact letter of the law, he understands what the law is actually trying to do. And he's actually living in accordance with that. Okay? Um, a, a kind of funny story about this. Uh, some of my friends, you, you might know Dustin Berger or uh, Sarah Howard. They, I, I, hopefully I get this story right. They might have to correct me afterwards. But I, I was over at their house one time. And they showed this this line. They grew up kind of like on a farm out in the sticks, and uh, when their dad was on the tractor, they weren't supposed to like go past uh, a certain line. And there was a, there was a certain situation where one of them, I think it was Dustin, maybe, uh, got injured somehow. Was, head was bleeding or something like that. And uh, their mom wasn't home, and the dad was out on the tractor. And uh, the oldest Berger girl is a very big rule follower. Like she's. And, uh, you know, she was the oldest, so she wanted to assert her authority over the other kids. And, and I think it was Sarah was like, um, well, Dustin's bleeding. Like, we need, we need to go get dad. And tell him, she's like, no, you can't cross the line. You've got to stay here. And so she wouldn't let her sister go. And so finally, they had to wait until the mom got home. And she finds her son with the bloody head. And like, well, what do you, why, why didn't you get your dad? And the response is, well, we're not supposed to cross the line when he's on the tractor. Right. And so clearly there was a misunderstanding between the spirit of the law and the letter of the law there. OK. There are times that that I think we can get this way where we get so wrapped up and not really understanding what it's actually the law is trying to do. Uh, So, you know, the speed limit, for example, I don't think the point of it is like, oh, my goodness, if you drive one mile an hour over the speed limit, you're in sin. The point of the speed limits are to keep our roads safe and to keep everybody moving at an appropriate speed through a certain area that's generally keeping everyone kind of in the same group. Um, It's not to to make you obsess about looking at your speedometer all the time, right? Like, if you do that, you're actually making the roads less safe. Um, But don't use that an excuse to just blatantly disregard the speed limit and say, spirit of the law. Um, All right? Uh, I I think even kind of like some of these mask mandates, there's some similar kinds of things. I mean, there's a reason I'm not wearing a mask right now as I'm talking to you up here. Um, you know, clearly it's supposed to be getting this idea of like, okay, in the face-to-face interactions, the authorities on this campus are trying to encourage us to or tell us to wear masks so that we um, don't, don't spread the coronavirus. Okay, I think there's a difference between like the spirit of the law and the letter of the law. I'm not going to be totally obsessed about making sure I have my mask on every second that I'm inside of a building. But if I want to respect their authorities, And I'll I'll be honest, I haven't been good about this. Like this has actually been one of the areas I've been convicted this week. It's like, if I wanna respect their authority, then then I most of the time should be wearing a mask while I'm indoors on UC's campus. Um, I don't say that to call any of you guys out or whatever. Like I said, I've been bad about it too. Um, But just like realizing, man, okay, if I wanna submit to the authorities, it's probably a good thing to do. Um, So after you've identified the spirit of the law, I really believe that you should obey it if you can, right? Like Romans 12, 17 and 18 says, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. This really should be our heart. Like as Christians, we should want to be people that are living at peace with each other. Um, We should desire harmony. And so you may really disagree with a certain law, but like, unless it's actually morally wrong, I think that you should just obey it if you can, okay? You might think, for example, that like the drinking age is really stupid. Like you're 18 years old, you can vote, you can be drafted into war, you know, you can do all these kinds of things, but you can't have a beer, whatever. You may think it's stupid, but it's the law and, and God has put the authorities in place over you. You should follow it. Um, now, there may be times where it's appropriate even to defy the spirit of the law, even if it's not sinful, but this is something that you need to be really serious about working out with the Lord, okay? Not just flippantly doing what you want to do. Um, I think that this pandemic has honestly brought up a lot of questions about this, and it really comes down to this idea of what what you might call jurisdictional overreach, okay? Which is this idea of like, to what extent has God given the government authority over us? Yes, he's put them in, in places of authority, Uh, But has he given them the authority to decide what we can wear? Or has he given them authority to decide what media we consume? Or what we have to do with our bodies? Like, for example, has God given the Taliban the authority to tell women in Afghanistan that they have to, like, wear a burqa? You know, or or has God given the government the authority to, like, force a vaccine into my body? Or um, have, whatever, There's, there's lots of issues that Christians around the world are dealing with, with the governments that they have, and we have it pretty easy here for the most part in the United States. Um, I don't think there's necessarily easy answers to all of these questions. Um, I don't think it's something that I can adequately address here in this context. I'm talking to a large group about general things, um, but with that being said, I do think that these are the kind of issues that we need to work through the Lord with, we need to be earnest in prayer about, and we need to have hearts that truly desire to submit to God and to honor the authorities that he's put in place over us, okay? So as I wrap up here, I really just want to say three things. First off, um, don't be thrown off course by exceptions, all right? Uh, There's always going to be tough questions and exceptions to rules, um, that those are gonna draw our attention, right? Like when we re- read a passage like this, but what about this, and what about this, and what about this? And it's like, yes, we have all those kind of things, but the general rule of what we see here is pretty clear. Like we, we should be people that are submitting to our government. Um, the vast majority of these cases, that's something that we can and should do. And so the second thing is just, like, Christians should be good citizens in their respective countries. We should not be a group of people that the leadership hates for any reason other than if they just hate the gospel itself, right? Like if they're just actually anti-Christian, then whatever. We can be a group of people that they hate. But otherwise, like Christians should be people that that are seen as a blessing in their communities and hopefully by their governments for the way that, that we comply with the things that we're asked to do and the way that we're blessings to our communities. Remember, the point of laws is actually to make society better. I know they don't always necessarily have that effect, but that's the idea behind them. Okay, so like for example, you're a blessing to other people on the road when you obey the traffic laws, okay? You're a blessing to others when you pay your taxes, because those taxes are going to support things like police and fire and roads and education and all this kind of stuff, right? So like a- as you actually submit to your government and you're being a good citizen, in many ways you are being a blessing to the other people in that society, that those laws uh, are supposed to be helping. Um, Living this way might require you to do some things that you don't like or even that you think are stupid. Uh, But if in good conscience you can still do it, then you should do it. All right, and the last thing I should say is that Christians should not only be good citizens of their countries, but we should be good citizens of heaven. Paul says in Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Ultimately, we know this is our true kingdom, is heaven. This world is not our home. We we have been given new life and ultimately we are waiting for our king Jesus, right? Like what he says there in the passage. But if we want to be good kingdom citizens, one of the ways that we do that is by submitting to our earthly governments here. And it actually goes way beyond that. And that's why there's all sorts of stuff that we're called to do as Christians, as kingdom citizens, that are not laws, okay? Uh, but at the very least, we can be people that submit to our government. And as we continue on through the rest of Romans, we'll continue to see uh, principles about how we should live as good kingdom citizens. Um, so I hope that that was able to to shed some light for you on what I think is a really difficult passage. I know there's still probably a lot of questions. Um, if you have them, I'd love to, to speak with you about them. I'd love to wrestle through some of this stuff with you. Uh, Christians for, for 2,000 years have struggled through some of these things with Understanding how we should relate to government um, but but by and large, I think that we we can understand we sh- can, need to do the best job we can to be both good citizens of our countries and good citizens of heaven um, let's pray <clears throat> God, we love you, and I thank you um, that you're with us, and I thank you that you um, you care about even earthly things like the kingdoms that are established here um the rulers that you raise up god and sometimes we don't even understand why certain people are raised up into power we may not like it and lord we just confess that we don't have the perfect wisdom that you have we can't see every purpose that you see god we just trust that you're good though just as uh the the thing in romans 12 said that um ultimately, vengeance is yours. You'll repay, Lord, and if there's evil rulers, we know that eventually you're, you're going to set that right. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be people that actually have the courage to live the way that you call us to, both in having the courage to submit where we need to submit, and Lord, help us to also to be people that have the courage to, to rise up and defy authority where when we need to defy it, as we see that Uh, Both of those things are really important for the dual citizenship that we have, God. Um, Lord, ultimately, you're our king. And we want to be perfectly obedient to you. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that uh, you would move in our hearts and just even shed light on where we might need to change, where our actions need to change, or maybe even just where our attitudes need to change. So Lord, we want to worship you. You're worthy of it. You're our true King. We love you. and We pray that your send's awesome name. Amen. You guys can stand. We're gonna worship.